Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hey, what's up? It's Nolan from Past Gas by Donut Media. We are an automotive history show. This week, we're talking the life story of Gilles Villeneuve, Canada's most important Formula One driver. This guy is a national hero up there and truly one of the greats taken from us too soon. He started out racing snowmobiles when he was a teenager. He invented one of the most important snowmobile innovations ever, which is crazy for a Formula One driver to do, and eventually became just one of the most legendary drivers of the 1970s. This guy raced for such a short time, but had such a large impact, and it was super cool to talk about a Quebecois racing legend. That's Past Gas by Dona Media, available anywhere you get your podcasts. Subscribe today. Number one automotive podcast, Past Gas. In 1938, a year before World War II broke out, a 26-year-old German driver named Bernd Rosemeyer crashed while driving over 260 miles per hour on a public road, killing him instantly. Just a few years earlier, Rosemeyer had been a humble mechanic, working at his dad's garage. But by the time of his death, he was a Grand Prix champion with a wife who was also one of the biggest German celebrities at the time. As Bernd's tragic rise and fall played out, so too did the ascent of the grimmest figure in world history, Adolf Hitler. In Rosemeyer's story, Hitler saw an opportunity to convince the world of Germany's dominance in auto racing and beyond. And even in death, Rosemeyer was a pawn in Hitler's propaganda scheme as Hitler transformed his funeral into a massive Nazi rally. Rosemeyer's widow protested, but to no avail. The Fuhrer would have his way. Today on Past Gas, the incredibly horrific, horrifically incredible story of Hitler's racing program. Who are the drivers driving for the bad guys of history, sometimes proudly and sometimes reluctantly? Why were some of them not even German? And why did auto racing and speed records play such a crucial role in Hitler's Nazi crusade? We're going to find out why, plus more today on Past Gas. Whoa. Yeah. What are you guys doing here? Whoa. <laughs> what are you doing in my room? <laughs> yeah, we're in the same room for the first time in eight months. Yeah. Feels we're weird. like a little bit closer than I am comfortable with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Even, even though we did rapid tests, um, we are taking precautions, but we are very close. And, you know, I'm high risk, so I'm glad we're doing this. <laughs> um, I am glad we're doing this finally. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, yeah, if I'm going to die, I'm glad it's with you guys. Yeah. Or because I could hang out with you guys for If an there's hour. only a way we could do that big, muscly handshake with three <laughs> hands, <laughs> it does feel strange to be this. Like, we are physically very close. This table is six feet long, at least. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's a four foot table. Oh, well. I'm glad I'm. I'm taller than this table then. Uh, <laughs> just um, kind of weird. 
Are you trying to fight the table? <laughs> What's going on? Welcome to Pass Gas. Sorry we got so sidetracked. I am your host, Nolan Sykes. Uh, joined, as always, in person this time by my co-host, James Pumphrey. My power, baby! And Joe Weber. I'm truly fired up to be here. <laughs> Thanks, Nolan. You're welcome. Yeah, and uh, as the intro suggests, today we're talking about the racing program of Nazi Germany. I don't actually know a lot about it. Uh, I don't. I do know that you know Hitler used a lot of like athleticism, like the Olympics, uh, and as like a spectacle to push the like German uh, superiority mm. to the world. Um, and I have heard and am aware that you know Mercedes the the beginning of the Mercedes racing program was like heavily influenced and funded by Nazi Germany, but. I don't know many of the specifics, and I'm excited to dig in. Yeah, I didn't know about the whole records thing up until like a month ago. And I was like, wait, they set, just reading this, like 260 miles per hour. That's insane. On a public road <laughs> in 1938. Yeah, that's pretty Yeah, cool. I had no idea that was a thing. All right, so I guess we should just get into it then. Yeah. All right. Our story begins in 1933. 1933 was a dark year for Germany on January 30th. Of that year, under great political pressure, the president of the country, Paul von Hindenburg, appointed Hitler as chancellor. The Fuhrer would soon remake the country in his image, consolidating power and creating a one-party dictatorship dedicated to Nazi ideology. Hitler's ideology can be understood through two lenses. First was a heavy authoritarian strain of populism appealing to ordinary people, discounting elites, and promising the return to a golden age for Germany. For years, Hitler had accomplished this by holding massive rallies in Nuremberg and elsewhere. You've probably seen the black and white video of Hitler giving speeches, so you've seen these events. The second ideal was supremacy. The utterly abhorrent and dangerous idea that the Germanic people were the supreme race who both deserved and were destined to rule the world. Kind of cliched in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> But how did populism and Germanic supremacy relate to the world of cars, guys? That's what I want to know. <laughs> Was I supposed to have an answer prepared or what? Uh, the connection would be made only a few days into Hitler's regime. From February 11th to the 23rd of 1933, the 23rd Berlin Motor Show. It was there that in one of his first public events as chancellor, Hitler gave a notable speech uh, making the German people two automotive promises. The first of Hitler's promises was to build the so-called people's car, or as it translated in German, the Volkswagen, which we've talked about on this show. This is one of those ones, like, I love Volkswagens, like I always have. You are. You are a Volkswagen um, guy. Like, why wouldn't you rebrand? That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like. Well, from a, a market, like, you, they build affordable cars. Uh-huh. For the people. <laughs> sure. I mean, it makes sense. It's just like, like. They probably would have called themselves that regardless. I mean, they like changed the name of New Orleans' basketball team. <laughs> 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 oh, yeah. Yeah. And they didn't kill six million people. <laughs> yeah. The Washington football team has yeah. been that for like a whole season. Like, just pick a name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, the the Volkswagen Hitler uh, gave the job. <laughs> of, uh, Good no, twenty twenty one Volkswagen Hitler. Hitler. <laughs> uh, he gave the the job to Ferdinand Porsche, 
again, we discussed this in our series on the, on the Beetle. The plan, sorry, was to give all Germans the ability to buy a car by offering them a government-backed payment plan. Given the economic recession that had helped Hitler come to power, it was a very appealing promise, although the reality would be much more complicated. If you remember, they had like the stamps. Mm-hmm. And it was like basically impossible to buy a car, right? Yeah. It was like a whole book of stamps, uh-huh. and you needed 5,000 stamps, and you would get like one a week. <laughs> oh, that's right, yeah. So that's what, 100 years? <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to check that. It sounds great. And if you want to know more, check out our series on the Beatle. The second promise was related to German supremacy. To that end, Hitler announced the foundation of a state-sponsored racing program with the goal of creating an entire, quote, high-speed German automotive industry. Hitler's pledge was two-pronged. He was going to make cars for everyone, and their cars were going to be the fastest. The story of VW is fascinating, but today we're focused on the latter project, German race cars and the drivers who race them. To get his racing program underway, Hitler would tap the two top German car companies, Mercedes-Benz and Auto Union, uh, which is Audi. Audi. Mercedes was the first to get involved as Hitler offered a 450,000 German marks incentive to whichever German car maker could build a Grand Prix car to bring racing victory to Germany. Much to the annoyance of Mercedes, none other than mad automotive scientist and close Hitler ally Ferdinand Porsche got wind of the incentive and stepped in with a proposal. What if Hitler split the fund between Mercedes and another German auto company, Auto Union, and add in a cash bonus for whichever company performed best in the 1934 Grand Prix season? The Fuhrer said, for sure, and the rivalry was ignited. <laughs> that sounds uh, like him. <laughs> oh, dude, for sure. Classic management tactic. Mm-hmm. Pinning uh, people against each exactly. other. Exactly. Yeah, that's like, we actually do that a little bit. We we pin the show teams against each other. That's true, uh, with the promise of, uh, of, of uh, a DoorDash gift, gift card. card. If you're not familiar with Auto Union, the name of the company it was quite literal. It was a conglomerate created a year before Hitler's 1933 speech as a consolidation of four previously independent German car brands. DKW, Horch, <laughs> Wanderer, and the best-known Audi. Audi. If you've ever wondered why Audi's logo consists of four interlocking rings, this merger history factoid provides your answer. One ring for each of the four auto union companies. Like the Olympics, but more Nazi-ish. Uh-huh. I thought that Horch became Audi. They all became Audi. Auto Union became Audi. Okay. Because Horch means like to hear in German mm-hmm. and Audi is like audio. Audi- yeah. Yeah. Maybe like that was just like a thing back then. Yeah. Can you hear our cars? Can you you can hear a horse that you can hear. <laughs> <laughs> no more horses tra- are no more getting silently trampled. Yeah. Horses are famously very quiet. <laughs> the most silent of animals. The silent killer. <laughs> horse. Why do you think they call it horse whisperer? <laughs> They're always whispering. <laughs> Secrets. The horses are good at keeping a secret. <laughs> you can always trust a horse. <laughs> They famously cannot talk. (laughs) (laughs) Grand Prix of the early 30s have been dominated by French and Italian makers, namely Bugatti, Alfa Romeo, and Maserati. A rule change for the 1934 season would create the opening the Germans needed. The league's regulators were concerned that engine sizes were getting out of hand. And uh, yeah, like they had motors that were like 21 liters. And to compensate, they decided to restrict the total weight of the car, including driver and fuel, to 750 kilograms 
or roughly 750 kilos, which roughly <laughs> translate to 1,650 pounds. Mercedes' 1934 entry was named the W25. The regulators had assumed that the weight restriction would limit engine power, but Mercedes engineers at Daimler quickly proved them wrong. Going from the previous car's massive 7-liter engine to a 3.4-liter engine that was less than half the size, the team nevertheless managed to increase the engine output to 300 horsepower. Over the years, the car would only improve eventually achieving close to 500 horsepower with a larger capacity engine that nonetheless stayed under the weight limit. As far as the shape of the car, imagine the Monopoly piece and you're not far <laughs> off. The W25 had a bullet-shaped body with both axles extended beyond its narrow frame that was barely wider than the driver himself. It's like um, Quagmire's car from... Oh yeah, so just taking a look at this car... Yeah, this is like classic Grand Prix right mm -hmm. here. Yeah. And they got classic. the little tiny little baseball helmets. Yeah. <laughs> and the tires are so skinny. I can't believe that this... Can you imagine driving this thing 500 horsepower <laughs> yeah. with tires that are like, no joke, probably like six inches wide? It's just like Mad Max where you're like, I'm doing this for, for my leader. <laughs> yeah, and it's just like full of gas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I the old I think it's because I'm getting older, but like I'm more and more attracted to cars from the 30s, mm -hmm. and I think that potentially one day I might own one. What would you get? Uh, I don't know enough about them. Probably like some sort of maybe, <laughs> maybe like a like a Ford truck. Oh yeah, be cool. I model Model A yeah, truck. Yeah, Model A truck. Would be After cool. riding the Bugatti up to speed, I really wanted like a Type 35. <laughs> <laughs> I think mine's a little bit more attainable. <laughs> yeah, that does like part of working here is uh, an issue is like, yeah, I could totally see myself. You know, I'll get one of those Grand Prix racers from the 30s. And it's like, <laughs> oh, do I have $45 million or the, the wherewithal to plan a heist at a, some sort of museum? <laughs> Meanwhile, the W25's auto union rival was taking shape in the form of a prototype named the P-Wag. Oh, this yeah. is so good. <laughs> like, this is, uh, okay, We'll this that. being pre-war Germany, that P could only stand for one name, the aforementioned Ferdinand Porsche. It's so, a P car. It's a P car. Yeah. Max was right. Yeah. <laughs> Porsche was suffering from the economic downturn and had actually built the P-Wagon. The P-Wagon. On spec, that is, in hope of attracting a potential client based on the work. The strategy worked as Auto Union, in need of a Mercedes killer, was attracted by Porsche's design. It was at this point that Porsche had his fateful meeting with Hitler and convinced him to include Auto Union in his racing program pledge. From a technical standpoint, the P-Wagen <laughs> was an evolution of oh. Porsche's 1923 RH Tropfenwagen race car. Itself a take on the original Rumpler Tropfenwagen <laughs> road car. I love the Rumpler Tropfenwagen. Oh, now that you say that, yeah, it puts oh, yeah, it into it, context. It, <laughs> Tropfenwagen was German for teardrop car, and the prototype P-Wagen stayed true to the teardrop shape, with a blunted nose and a long, tapering tail. As the tail was wind-tested, however, it turned out that while it looked aerodynamic, it didn't actually add any measurable aero, and it was promptly chopped off. So, uh, listeners might know the P-Wagen um, if they've played Forza Horizon 4. If you do like those... those uh, there's like a Top Gear style thing, or no? There's like that the side missions where that lady's doing the documentary. Yeah, the businesses that you yeah. get involved with. There's and like then, ten missions each. So you actually get to drive this car, 
and then the lady tells you about it as you drive it. In track testing, the P-Wagen proved to be plenty fast, especially for the era. It set multiple speed records and reached a top speed of 157 miles per hour. I've driven faster than that. <laughs> the car was so powerful, in fact, that it would lead Ferdinand to invent the limited slip differential in 1935 to compensate for the rear wheels slipping at speeds under 100. Whoa. Hmm. I didn't know that he invented that. I thought it was my dad. <laughs> my dad said he invented DLSD. <laughs> The German companies had successfully designed impressively innovative Grand Prix cars, but why was the focus so heavily on the team's German nationality? Hmm. Auto racing nowadays does not resemble an international sport, except for Formula One, of course, which was Grand Prix racing. After all, there's no racing in the Olympics, and the countries themselves aren't necessarily represented in modern organizations like Formula One or NASCAR. So I think he's trying to say it's not... Like a, it like countries don't put forth their teams, mm -hmm. yeah. Anymore, that's true. Yeah, like even Haas, which is like the most American, quote unquote, F one team. Yeah, we've got Kevin Magnuson and Romain Grosjean. Grosjean is French. Magnuson, Gunther. Yeah, yeah, Gunther Steiner. Yeah, and like the team is based in Britain. You know, so it's not really an American team. However, I mean the the sponsor is, but that's kind of it. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Back in the 30s, on the other hand, Grand Prix racing was much more nationally oriented. In fact, before sponsored liveries became standard for race cars after World War II, Grand Prix cars were typically painted a standard national color. British cars were, of course, British racing green. French cars were Bleu de France. And, of course, Italians had the Rosso Corsa red. Up until that point, Mercedes and other German companies typically fielded white cars. But if you don't typically associate Germany with a white livery, that's because an eventful race at Nürburgring that would define the racing era that had arrived along with Hitler and his Grand Prix mandate. The 1934 season had got off to a slow start for both Mercedes and Auto Union. Both teams were struggling to tune their new cars. Eleven races into the season, neither team had recorded a win, and they were now headed to the legendary Nürburgring for the Eifelrennen, a race in Germany's Eiffel Mountain region that actually predated the Nürburgring itself. Oh. Although this myth has been disputed by some historians, it's still included in the history section of Mercedes' official website, so we'll repeat it here, and you can take it with a Salzkorn, which is German for a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Salzkorn. Salzkorn. Salty corn sounds <laughs> The story goes that driver Manfred... Ma Manfred von von Brauchisch. Brauchisch. A lot of consonants. It's consonants a in lot a row. in a row. The story goes that driver Manfred von Brauchisch. <laughs> Wait. What? <laughs> Manfred. Manfred. <laughs> the story goes that driver Manfred von Brauchisch, German W25 weighed in a day before race day, just a kilo over the official 750 kilogram limit. So the mechanics decided to scrape the white paint off of the car, shedding a kilo of weight very conveniently mm. and revealing the silver color of the metal bodywork. Would the paint on a race car weigh two pounds? If it had lead in it, maybe. So. Oh, it had lead yeah. in it. Yeah. Very... But maybe Manfred was like, you know, like lifting up the bumper a little bit on the scale. <laughs> he cut his foot off. <laughs> I no, I'd imagine that like like a gallon of paint weighs oh, yeah. has a lot of weight mm -hmm. to it. You know, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Like if you don't believe me, watch Home Alone. 
whether it was the new color scheme or the home country advantage, uh, Brock Kitsk won. I'm really sorry. Just call him Manfred. Manfred, thank you, drove to victory. A month later, again at the Nürburgring, auto union driver Hans Stuck won the German Grand Prix. Hans Stuck. Hans Stuck won the German Grand Prix, cementing Germany's arrival onto the scene. And from then on, silver was Germany's racing color. Silver arrows. Mm -hmm. What we're talking about. Following these two wins, the German cars became famous as the Silver Arrows. And the name would become synonymous with Grand Prix dominance for the rest of the 1930s. By 1935, the Grand Prix scene had been turned upside down. While in 1934, Alfa Romeo and Maserati had won all five of the Grand Epreuve, the major championship races of the season, in 1935, the German teams won six out of seven. The dominance only continued as the 30s went on, and Mercedes and Auto Union continued to advance their superior engineering. Of course, unlike so many other golden ages of racing, the decade of the Silver Arrows is an arrow that's hard to cheer on, given that it's pretty tainted by Hitler's support. Although the government incentives he'd offered both teams were small compared to Mercedes and Auto Union's overall racing budgets, the connection between the Silver Arrows and an increasingly aggressive and nationalistic dictatorship were all too clear. Hitler intended the racing team to be the embodiment of his repellent Nazi worldview. And that uh, sucks. So, with the silver cars in place, who were the drivers at the helm? Hans Stuck, the top auto union racer in the early 30s, was perhaps the prototypical German driver. He grew up on a farm and learned to drive fast while delivering milk from the farm into the city of Munich. Gotta get there before it... Uh, My milk is going bad. <laughs> Eventually, he got involved in hill climbs, becoming known as Bergkönig, German for King of the Mountain. That's kind of sick. Yeah. Cool. In 1925, he had a chance meeting with Hitler on a hunting trip years before the Fuhrer was the Fuhrer. Then in 1933, he was instrumental in helping Porsche develop and test the P Wagon. You know, if he had just aimed a little bit to the left, he could have like, pulled, yeah, pulled a Dick Cheney. Pulled a Dick Cheney and smashed his. Brand in the face with a bullet. Um, it's a good thing that he didn't do off-road racing while he was delivering that milk, because then it would have turned to butter. Turned to butter. Oh no! All my milk is <laughs> butter. <laughs> <laughs> it's important to note that not all silver arrow drivers fit neatly into Hitler's vision of Germanic dominance. Although some, including the ill-fated Bernd Rosemeyer, certainly came close. <laughs> Auto racers for the most part, are not an inherently political Whoa. bunch, and the majority did what was required in order to give them access to Mercedes and Auto Union's superior cars. And although Hitler was certainly known as an official very bad dude in the 1930s, none of these drivers could have known the depths to which his regime would soon sink in the following decade. Another famous German on the Mercedes side was Rudolf Caracciola, who recorded an incredible 11 wins in 26 European championship starts. Pretty good. Bracciola was a model of Hitler's vision for German racing, a German racer in a German car. Like most German racers, he was a member of the Nazi paramilitary group known as the National Socialist Motor Corps. All German racers were actually required to join the Motor Corps, known as the NSKK, which before and during the war provided services ranging from transporting and propagandizing visiting dignitaries to transporting troops and supplies during the war. More like NSKKK. Yeah, dude, tight. <laughs> Unlike other German drivers, Krakiola was less than impressed with Hitler. In 1931, Hitler was enraged when the Mercedes 770, at the time the company's most deluxe car, was late to be delivered because all of the upgrades he'd requested. Remember the D-list? We just talked about the 77K. Mm-hmm. 
It was the most powerful car in the world at the time. To try and make the Fuhrer a little less furious, Mercedes sent Caracciola, their star driver, to hand-deliver the car and use it to give Hitler a tour of Munich. Later, he would write of the meeting, I could not imagine that this man would have the requirements for taking over the government someday. Sounds familiar. He had very small hands. He had very small hands. I only saw one lump in his Caracciola. <laughs> <laughs> He never could have realized that the sense of grievance and indignation that Hitler felt about his late Mercedes would be magnified into the hateful force that propelled him to the international stage. He also resented being used as a prop for the Nazi regime as he won race after race. After the war broke out, Krakiola declined to join the Nazi party, opting to wait out the conflict in Switzerland instead. Hmm. This guy's all right. Racing wasn't the only automotive pursuit where the Germans would seek dominance, however. In 1933, in addition to his promise to build a people's car, Hitler announced that he would set about a massive construction project, the largest in the nation's history, to build a system of highways that would connect the country. The Channel. Right? No, it's not the Channel. Want another guess there, Joe? Uh, English, the English Channel. <laughs> the Autobahn. Oh. Uh. Flash forward almost 100 years. You have the script in front of you. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Flash forward almost 100 years. Hitler has long been defeated, but the Autobahn remains. If you pull over along one of his rest stops outside the city of Frankfurt, you'll come to a nearly forgotten stone pillar and a wooden plaque. It commemorates the location on the Autobahn where a man died at the young age of 28 by the name of Bern Rosemar. I was thinking last night, I really wish... America, I mean, we have like our interstate system, which is basically mm-hmm. Autobahn, but I wish we had that, like a fast lane, mm-hmm. you know? I think they should build like a double decker <laughs> or maybe underneath. <laughs> we'll be right back with more of this story. But first, a word from our sponsors. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. So, who was Bern Rosemar? Simply put, he was Adolf Hitler's favorite driver. One of Hitler's favorite tactics in selling Nazism was the creation of myth. Remember the character of Frederick Zoller in Inglorious Bastards? Mm-hmm. He was the photogenic sniper war hero who was enlisted by Goebbels to star in his own Nazi propaganda film about killing 250 soldiers. Rosemeyer was basically the Frederick Zoller of auto racing. Rosemeyer started his career in his father's garage, where he worked on a wide range of cars and bikes. 
When he was recruited for the auto union, his lack of racing experience was actually considered an asset. Unlike drivers who had started on earlier Grand Prix cars, he didn't have to unlearn anything to master the lightweight but big-engine Porsche wagons. Bern Rosemeyer had a meteoric rise to the ranks of the Grand Prix. In his debut season in 1935, his most memorable event was in Czechoslovakia. It was there that the famed lady pilot Ellie Beinhorn had been asked to present the winner of the race with a trophy. Ellie was the Amelia Earhart of Germany, having flown a plane solo around the world at the age of 24. Dang. Cool. Rosemeyer, on the other hand, was still a virtual unknown at this point. Ellie figured she'd be given the prize to the race's heavy favorite, Hans Stuck. But fate intervened, and Byrne won the race. But more importantly, he met Ellie on the podium, and the two would have a whirlwind romance before getting married in 1936. It's cool. Yeah. By 1936, Rosemeyer's fame was catching up to his wife's. In only his second season racing for Auto Union in 1936, Rosemeyer won three of the four European Championship events, securing the overall title for himself and Mercedes. His rise had been meteoric. In fact, Rosemeyer's racing nickname, fittingly, was the Silver Comet. As we know about comets, they got a crash at some point. Ooh. Rosemeyer and Ellie were a German uber couple embraced by national media and, of course, Hitler, who insisted that Rosemeyer, like many other German drivers, become an honorary member of the SS and wear a Nazi uniform to events. The couple's every action made the news. For instance, at the Italian Grand Prix of 1936, Auto Union brought along a spare P-Wagon, one of the older prototypes with a long tail. Rosemeyer dared his wife to give it a lap, and Ellie gamely drove a couple laps around the track. Rosemeyer was impressed, although he did note to his wife that she, quote, could have gone a bit faster on the straight, 125 miles per hour at least. Beyond racing, Auto Union had other plans for Rosemeyer. Auto Union and Mercedes had both built custom versions of their race cars with the intent to capture various speed records. Records translated to headlines, both for the auto companies and for the Third Reich. Just like Hitler had sought to do in the infamous 1936 Berlin Olympics, when his attempt at proving German superiority was foiled by American track and field athlete Jesse Owens, Hitler wanted to use the records to heighten nationalism and humiliate his international rivals. The experimental high-speed automobiles that Auto Union and Mercedes produced were indeed marvels of engineering. The Mercedes entry was labeled the Record Wagon, very <laughs> aptly named. Yeah, It was a modified... W125 with a streamlined body that sealed in all four wheels. And since the record wagon didn't have to adhere to the 750 kilogram Grand Prix weight limit, it was also fitted with a massive V12 Mercedes engine. The one, the W125 is really sick. Yeah. Um, I don't like the, I, I like the Grand Prix version. I'm not a big fan of the, uh, the record wagon. Dude, it's so sick. But love that wow, W125. It's huge. It looks like a car that has like a sheet on it. Like it's going to be yeah. like revealed. Yeah, it uh, looks yeah. like it has a car cover. Yeah. Rosemeyer, for his part, was driving an Auto Union Streamliner. It was similar in design to the record wagon with one notable difference. It sported not a V12, but a V16 engine. 72 liters. <laughs> the plan was to use a stretch of newly built Autobahn for the speed trials. So on a frigid winter's day in 1938, not a day that I would use to to drive a car. Mm -hmm. uh, the public road was shut down and 28-year-old Rosemeyer was literally bolted into his auto union vehicle. What? The streamlining meant that Rosemeyer couldn't climb out if he wanted to. They had to like put the canopy on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, they could have put it on a hinge or something. <laughs> I don't know. 
We can engineer anything but a hinge. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's crazy. The cooling on the car allowed for 90 seconds of driving at the time. On the first run, Rudolf Caracciola, a the German driver for Mercedes, set an incredible top speed of 268.8 oh miles God. per hour. Wow. That's fast. And dude, like on a winter's day, those tires are probably super hard. Yeah. Probably can't get like any mm-hmm. grip. They're like bias ply, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah so that's a good point, James. Like yeah. the tires themselves are not flexible, really. Awful grip. Um, and by the way, that speed record for driving on a public road stood until 2017. An astonishing 79-year span. Yeah. Until who broke it? Me. Yeah. Your Civic? (laughs) (laughs) Rosemeyer had his work cut out for him. Andy performed admirably, hitting 266.5 on his first run. Something to note, though, although the Germans had built incredibly fast cars, some of the engineering was done by trial and error. Ground effect especially was not yet fully understood. The Germans knew that a car cut through the air and created downforce and was important, but they didn't understand the complexities behind the mechanics. Unbeknownst to Rosemeyer, his car was buckling under the weight of the downforce. His next run was also in the 260s. How did they, they must have just had like markers and then did the math, right? They didn't have radar guns back then. I'd imagine so, yeah. The timing, yeah. They shot a bullet and he (laughs) caught up to it. (laughs) Rosemeyer asked for a final run, hoping to achieve a faster average time for the Mercedes. Unfortunately, on his third run, Rosemeyer lost control. Swerving tire tracks showed that the young driver had tried to save his car. Traveling over 260 miles per hour, Rosemeyer's car catapulted off the road, severing trees before coming to a rest more than 60 feet from the road. Rosemeyer died moments later. It's very possible that in those final moments of driving, he was driving faster than the record Caracciola had set, but we'll never know for sure. Rosemeyer's death put the speed record attempts on hiatus for both Auto Union and Mercedes. And with the war to come, many of the records set would last for decades. Meanwhile, Hitler found the opportunity for propaganda, even, perhaps especially, in death, as he turned Rosemeyer's funeral into a Nazi rally. <sighs> When I die, please do not turn my... Oh, I'm turning your funeral into a rally for sure. It's going to be like a merch giveaway situation. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to give everybody like 25% off because Joe (laughs) died. Oh, man. (laughs) Oh, hey, yo, we're really sad right now. Go to donutmedia.com and get your RIP Joe. Yeah, with code RIP, you can get 20% off at checkout. Like that, with like a donut hat. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, guys, let's put your big boy hats on, your mature caps. Um, No giggling during this section, all right? Okay. Oh, Oh, I see why. Dick Seaman, another driver (laughs) for Mercedes, had a much more bizarre story, and not just because his name was Dick Seaman. Is it Dick Seaman or Dick Seaman? Dick Seaman. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I think I'm just it's gonna say like Dick, Dick Seaman. Seaman. Dick Seaman was another driver for Mercedes. Had a much more bizarre story, and not just because his name was Dick Seaman. <laughs> Seaman was not a German, but an Englishman born to a wealthy and well-connected British family. His dad set up a trust fund for him worth nearly ten million dollars in today's dollars. Dang. <laughs> There's one catch, however: young Dick wouldn't get the cash until he reached the age of twenty-seven. Hmm. While he waited, Dick Seaman. Hurst other activities. He was a Teddy Roosevelt type with passions for skiing, shooting, and eventually even flying planes. 
It was while attending school at Cambridge that Dick Seaman got his first taste of racing at the Shelsley Walsh Speed Hill Climb, now famously the oldest and longest-running hill climb event in the world. Dick placed second. He was hooked. And I hooked Dick. (laughs) (laughs) Then he met Prince Albert. He was hooked. (laughs) As he got into racing and soon discovered he was a natural, quickly becoming known as for his fluid driving style. (laughs) 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 Tommy. (laughs) That wasn't enough, however, to stop him from crashing his Bugatti into a bus at the age of 19. Another thing helping him was his mom's purse strings. She spent over $2 million funding her son's racing. Oh, my goodness. At first, Seaman drove for French automakers Delage. It was a deluge. (laughs) But bigger opportunities were in store for the young trust fund kid. You know, that's often how it goes. After winning a 1936 race on the Isle of Man, the chief of Mercedes, Alfred Neubauer, took notice of Seaman's performance. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and invited him to try out at Nürburgring. This the, guy's this guy's got a barrel, right? <laughs> <laughs> By this point, it was 1937, and was it was that a funny name back then? I mean, both those words existed. I don't think Dick was as much a penis. Yeah, because every like private dicks, mm-hmm. and yeah, yeah, I, and plus, like the 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 Brits probably have different slang for that anyway. Yeah, they call it chumbaing. <laughs> And and like they use British people use pussy as like a term of affection. What? Yeah, like back at, back then they were like like if you were in love with a oh, woman. He's a yeah, yeah. But it was like endearing. Mm. They also like, ah, he's a right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By this point it was nineteen thirty seven and tensions between Britain and Germany were reaching a boiling point. Dick Seaman's old mother begged him not to drive for what she now saw as a Nazi racing team, but Seaman couldn't resist Mercedes' big budgets and lightning fast Silveros. This is what I'm talking about. Like, he's like, yeah, like his own mom was like, yo, like you should not be doing. Yo, this. I'll give you two million more dollars if you don't become like, a but Nazi. They have the best stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I want to go drive the best stuff, mom. Yeah, do you- the best stuff. <laughs> However, some months later, it was apparent that the Siemens family had come around to the Nazi way of doing things. In a letter to his mom, Seaman, the only British driver on either German racing team, wrote that Hitler stands no nonsense. He won't have any slackers about. It's about time Hitler took over Austria too and made them sit up and pull themselves together. The dirt and the squalor and the laziness in the country are beyond words. Why? There are men who ask nothing better of life than to sit about all day over one cup of coffee in a cafe. Apparently to Dick, hanging out and drinking lattes was grounds for a foreign invasion. His mother, Lillian, wrote back in agreement. How impressive it is to see the way in which Herr Hitler (laughs) stands no nonsense from shirkers, wastrels, and communists. Meanwhile, this is a rich lady in England in 1937. All she does all day is mm-hmm. sit about and drink tea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, man. I don't, I didn't I've seen think downtown I was going to say Abbey. this, but I've I, seen downtown Abbey. You've seen downtown Abbey? Yeah, I've seen downtown Abbey. And all they do is wake up, get dressed, eat fancy breakfast, go away and drink some tea. Shall I prepare the evening tea, ma'am? Yeah, and then they <laughs> change clothes and get all dressed up to hang out with their parents. Like, dude wears a tuxedo every night just to hang out with his family. Shall I prepare the evening tuxedo, <laughs> sir? 
<laughs> yes, Crimley. Siemens wasn't the only Brit who sympathized with Nazis in the 30s, however. If you've seen the hit Netflix series The Crown, you'll remember a storyline about King Edward VIII who abdicated the throne in 1936 so he could marry the woman of his choice. At this point, Edward was seen palling around with Nazis as Edward felt rejected by England and embraced his German background. Edward and Siemens' stories were intertwined when Edward and his wife visited Stuttgart, Dick Seaman gave them a tour on the, of the Mercedes factory. I think at this point, there was like eight leaders of countries that were all like first cousins. Oh, like wow. it was like Sweden, uh, Queen Victoria at the time, uh, Germany, Spain. Like they were all like the same blood. Love to see Thanksgiving at their house. Yeah. <laughs> and now we go to Thanksgiving 1937. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Boy, why are we celebrating Thanksgiving in Britain? (laughs) 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 Seaman's dream had nothing to do with politics, however. It was to win a European Grand Prix. No British racer had accomplished that feat since 1923, an eternity in the still brief history of auto racing. For Seaman to have a chance at breaking that streak, he was more than willing to drive for Hitler. And to swim in there. Seaman wanted to come in first. Yeah. Like King Edward, Seaman found himself drawn to the German people. At a party thrown by BMW in 1938, Seaman, then 25, met an 18-year-old girl by the name of Erica Pop. Sounds like a, like a, I mean, a pop star. Yeah. You know, like a fake. Mm-hmm. Erica Pop. Star. It sounds like a, like a kind of goth uh, tattoo artist. Erica like, Pop. Oh, yeah, for sure. Just smoking hot. Mm-hmm. And she no does chance. like, uh, like Homer Simpson with face tattoos. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. And she has like a show on Discovery. I'm Erica Pop. <laughs> Tattoo artist to the stars. Cat mom. <laughs> and bungee jumping enthusiast. <laughs> <laughs> they had a lot in common, chiefly entitlement. Erica Pop's papa was Franz Pop, one of the founders of BMW. Oh. And Dick Seaman was smitten. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We'll get back to more past guests, but right now, a word from our sponsors. Twelve days after this meeting was the 1938 German Grand Prix at Nürburgring, held on July 24th. That's my birthday. Hey. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, dude. It was understandably the most important event on the calendar for the German teams. Dick Seaman had recently been relegated to a backup driver after a frustrating string of poor showings, but Mercedes was fielding four cars for the event giving him a chance to compete. A crowd of 300,000 had gathered for the event. The favorite driver was not Dick Seaman, but his fellow Mercedes driver and proud German, Manfred Braun Brauchitz, (laughs) who had won the French Grand Prix earlier that month, and the charismatic Italian driver, Tazio Nuvolari. Tazio Tazio Nuvolari. We talked about him in the uh, Ferrari episode Mm. many months ago. Yeah. Uh, has that been many months already? Mm-hmm. Wow. We've, I think we filmed the first one like over a, Way year, over ago. a year ago. Someone in the comments in the last video was like, I like the new guy. <laughs> <laughs> a year. Tazio Nuvolari was a fan favorite despite his lack of German heritage. He was also an incredible competitor in the face of great odds. From 1935 to 1939, Nuvolari was the only driver of a non-German car to win a championship Grand Prix event. Wow. Whether it was the cr- that is um, 
absurd. Mm-hmm. Four years? Yeah. Wow. Whether it was the crowd or his chance meeting with Erica, Seaman drove the race of his life. Nuvolari crashed in the first lap after oil sprayed on his goggles. Oh, no. I can remember. Braukitz took a strong lead, and in deference of his superior place on the team, Seaman lagged 10 seconds behind, although he took the fastest lap, showing that he was likely capable of passing von Brauchitz. Then came an improbable mishap. Von Brauchitz pitted, and as the engine restarted, the hot exhaust ignited some of the alcohol-based fuel. His uniform lit up with invisible flames, and he jumped out of the car in an attempt to extinguish them. Meanwhile, Neubauer, the team captain, urgently called out to Seaman, who was also pitted, to continue racing, and Siemens sped back onto the track to take the sole lead, a full four minutes ahead of the pack. Oh my God. Wow. Have you ever seen video of like alcohol fires? Yeah, it's crazy. And it, you don't even know what's going on, but mm-hmm. people are just like, oh. That was uh, when I did junior drag racing, those they run on methanol, which mm-hmm. also burns invisibly. And that was always like a fear in the back of my head. Mm-hmm. But like it, I, I'd never seen it happen. It, it's like a Briggs and Stratton motor that runs on methanol. Right? Yeah, they make like 26 horsepower <laughs> for one so cylinder. Yeah. yeah. Dick Seaman came in first and cemented the win for Mercedes. But this was not the storybook German driver vehicle racetrack trifecta the Nazis had hoped for. As a compromise, the Nazi sports director Adolf Hunlein, forever remembered in history as the other Nazi Adolf. <laughs> Man, it sucks to be the second. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm an Adolf too. And this is Adolf? Ooh, no, not that one. I'm in charge of these sports. <laughs> Even though the only thing von Brauchitz had managed to win was a trip to the burn unit after the race. Then, with Hitler... Erica Pop and a sea of Germans watching came the awkward part. Dick was draped in a swastika and blazoned sash and wreaths of laurels and presented the trophy, a giant bronze eagle named the Prize de Führers. The crowd gave the Nazi salute and chanted, Sieg Heil! Next to Seaman, Adolf Hunlin and Varn Brauchitz made the straight-armed salute. Seaman, in a moment frozen in history by an iconic photograph, Found a bizarrely compromising pose. He's just waving. <laughs> he upped his hand and outstretched it slightly forward, but with the elbow bent, okay? The elbow bent from somewhere between a wave and a salute. A sig half, if you will. A slight heil. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Four months later, Seaman married Erica Pop, despite the resistance of his mother who cut him off financially in retribution. She's going to take you bungee jumping. (laughs) The next year, 1939, would prove to be hugely fateful for Seaman, Hitler, and the world. In February, Hitler once again presided over the Berlin Motor Show, which by then had ballooned into a massive event with 825,000 visitors. Little did anyone know it would be the last of these events for nearly 40 years. Hitler gave a 17-minute speech, and then, at the end, curtains swept back, and a brass fanfare sounded out in the exhibition hall as the Fuhrer unveiled the people's car he had promised at the same event six years prior. It was the KDF car, better known as the Volkswagen Beetle. A few months later, in June of 1939, Seaman poised to bring Hitler yet another confirmation of the German automotive dominance he had promised at the Berlin Motor Show, leading the field at Spa 
in the Belgian Grand Prix in wet conditions. Love Spa. 21 laps into the race, however, Seaman had a disastrous error. Navigating around La Source hairpin, the tightest on the course, he took the dry weather line and veered off the track, crashing into a tree. His silver Mercedes was doused in fuel and caught fire. Ooh. Seaman was trapped under his steering wheel and couldn't escape. He suffered burns to 60% of his body. Britain's greatest driver of the pre-war era succumbed to his wounds later that night. No British driver would again win an international Grand Prix until 1955. I think that was the Jaguar. Mm. Dick Seaman left behind a bride, a mourning mother, and a terribly complicated legacy. That continued after his death when at a massively attended funeral in England, the largest wreath on display was sent by none other than Hitler himself. Ironically, Dick Seaman was just a few months shy of his 27th birthday, the day when he would gain access to the trust fund that his father had set up for him. He didn't even make it into the 27 Club. Yeah. Whatever your feelings on Dick Seaman's legacy, his death was a tragedy, but it was a mere hint at the terrible carnage to come. Just two months later, Hitler would invade Poland, kicking off the deadliest conflict in human history. With the start of the war would end the era of Silver Arrows, as Germans focused their efforts on a different sort of contest, one that would reshape the world forever. I mean, yeah, it sucks that he died like that, but at the same time, like... This dude was a freaking chotch. Yeah. What do you call him? Uh, not a scab, but like a yeah, turncoat? A little bit. Sort of. Especially since Britain would eventually be fighting mm-hmm. Germany. Um, I just, uh, like... The fact that he's just like, well, you know, his policies may be abhorrent, but damn, does he make a good race car. Like, I just, Mm -hmm. I can't abide by that. He's not, like, at all a hero in my mind. No, not at all. He's a rich kid who went to the other side so he could drive a race car. Mm -hmm. (sighs) If you're feeling mixed, if you're experiencing mixed feelings. That's what I am feeling. Yeah, that's totally understandable, Joe. I think my feelings are mixed. We typically prefer to separate politics from racing. But there are times, and we'll let you make your own connection uh, to recent events, as you wish, where those connections are inescapable. Racing, just like history itself, has a way of revealing humans at their best and worst moments. Moments of epic heroism, and tho- as well as those of despicable treachery and despotism. What's undeniable, though, is that Mercedes and Auto Union boasted incredible focus on engineering and driving talent throughout the 30s. German domination that hasn't been seen since... Well, now, with Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes in Formula One. It's a tragic fact that the accomplishments of these companies are tainted by their association with Hitler and the Nazis. And it's a fact that we can accept while also exploring the complexities of the various human beings involved. Some of those whom despised Hitler, if only behind his back. Doesn't count. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) However, in future episodes of Past Gas, we'll also be taking a look at some of the heroic drivers who challenged the Nazis on the track and won, including the amazing Lucy Shell, the first woman to ever compete in a Grand Prix. There are much sunnier eras of racing history to explore, but sometimes it's important to look into the darkness, if only to know what's there and how to avoid it in the future to come. Yeah, like, I, like we said, I don't like, yeah, rich kid who uh, just yeah. wanted the best stuff. And was willing to ignore everything else for Including it. Including like his family. Like his mom was like, yo, don't do yeah. this. But then she was also like, isn't it great how Hitler is so yeah. Yeah. hard on poor people? What's a great observation of you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's weird that they like, 
boast this on their website as like mm-hmm. an accomplishment and and completely neglect to say that it was like a a Nazi program. I mean, the like we said in the script, you know, it's not like their entire budget was coming from Hitler. It's yeah. like it's just kind of like they were doing their th- and I'm sure like the executives and stuff like a lot of them were Nazis mm-hmm, or for sure. whatever, but like the racing teams were being the racing teams and the fact that Hitler just like jumped on and was like, "Oh yeah, it's my racing team." I can't believe we are doing <laughs> yeah, this. Right, guys. <laughs> That's a good point. You know, it's like uh, it's like Drake and the Toronto Raptors. You know, it's like <laughs> you're not on the team, bro. Yeah, stop jumping up. Yeah, I, why? <laughs> give me the trophy back, dog. <laughs> I think it is like um, it, it's important. Like, I'm willing to be like, obviously, the F1 team of now. I'm not like they're a Nazi team. Obviously, mm-hmm. that's not accurate at all. But I think, I think maybe to your point, Joe, about the 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 um the web like Mercedes website maybe they should have like a little bit of like you know verbiage on there saying like hey, hey sorry yeah so yeah, yeah sorry or like at least acknowledging the reality of that because I think it's better that they have that site or they have that on there instead of like having none of it on there yeah I, mm-hmm. I feel like that would be even more egregious it's part of their history I get it is that. part of their history so I, I think it would be better for them to kind of acknowledge that. Um, and that's why in um, I recently watched like the Charger Daytona up to speed, mm-hmm. and like we mentioned the fact that Chrysler through Operation Paperclip, which was bringing Nazi scientists yeah. over to the U.S. to further our own space program, like Chrysler had rocket scientists who were mm-hmm. uh, Nazis work on rockets and also helped with the wing design. <laughs> yeah, yeah with like complete Daytona. It- immunity right so mm-hmm. i think yeah. it's very important to acknowledge that even though you know like you can acknowledge you can acknowledge that but also be like you can uh, still like yeah. the thing you can still like the thing and acknowledge that there is like some dark thread sort of yeah let's into it. Yeah. let's be honest with ourselves in that way i guess is what i'm trying to say uh, i think okay i i feel like there's like a there's a inclination that some people have when it's like yeah you know history is complicated and they they say that and then choose to just kind of like ignore the complicated right, parts yeah. of it. Yeah. Now, I don't want that to be the takeaway of this episode. Mm-mm. It's like, like we said, like the, the more you know about everything, the factors that go into things that you like, like mm-hmm. the better you can understand it. And I just think that's, that's the, a principled way to go about life. You know? And it's not like these people, like the drivers were like treasured national figures. Like they were just pawns. Like they he didn't care. No one cared about their safety. No one cared about their health. And then when they died, they were just used as tools mm-hmm. for propagation. That's a good point as well. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Past Gas. I like this one. This was yeah, this is fun. Yeah. <laughs> it was so fun, dude. <laughs> fun. No, this is a good one. Dick Seaman. <laughs> Dick Seaman always came first. Uh, <laughs> make sure to subscribe to the Donut Podcast channel if you haven't already. Um, tell your friend. Tell, tell a friend about the show. How about that? Call your parents. Tell them, tell them you, you love, love them. them. And then go 260 miles an hour. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've been Nolan Sykes, James Pumphrey, Joe G. Weber. That's it. That's it. Be kind. See you next time. I love you. Keep it juiced. <laughs> Keep it juiced. Keep it juiced. <laughs> <laughs>